Hey everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. If you've been listening to the program over the last few months, you know we've been taking a particular interest in the Michigan Department of Transportation's I-375 Reconnecting Communities Project. That project is meant to reconnect areas of the city that were disconnected, some of them even destroyed, when a highway, I-375, was constructed on the east side of downtown Detroit. Two predominantly African-American neighborhoods, Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, were particularly harmed by the construction of I-375 and the neighborhoods uh, that replaced Paradise Valley and Black Bottom. Because of its historical significance, we have been talking about a lot uh, of the things that, uh, that people who are part of the project uh, are feeling about this. Uh, there are a lot of folks who feel they have been overlooked during the project's design process. There are a lot of people who are just confused about what MDOT plans to do and how it will affect them. We've spoken with people who were displaced by I-375. We've spoken to historians about why highways so often destroy communities in Detroit and in other cities. And we've talked with MDOT specifically about what the agency is planning to do. But MDOT is not the only government authority that is in charge of this project or has any responsibilities. The city of Detroit also has real obligations once I-375 is removed. It has an obligation to be sure that Detroiters have the proper voice in what's happening around I-375 and what comes next. It has a responsibility to confront in the starkest terms the damage done to Detroiters in their communities when I-375 was constructed. We asked Antoine Bryant, who is director of the Planning and Development Department for the city of Detroit, about how the city has managed those responsibilities so far and whether Detroiters should expect something more or different in the future. One thing I want to say from the outset, thank you guys for the invitation. I've been listening to not only the invited guests, but also the public. So it's been great to have this conversation. I think it's important. But also, I hope that I have the opportunity to talk to you guys more than just today. Because yeah. one of the things I will emphasize is that this will be a process, right? The proverbial Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither was Detroit, right? And so <laughs> uh, we're going to be involved in this endeavor for a few years, yeah, right? And yeah. so this is something, not only just the, the alignment discussion and the actual construction of the uh, highway of 375, but to some extent, uh, and I think germane to many of your callers, what this means to the residents of Detroit. Right. That conversation is not a one-month or three-month or even six-month conversation for us to be responsive to the residents of Detroit and to be responsible. Uh, it's something that we see as, as a long-term and comprehensive conversation. Yeah. I guess my first question really is about the way this process has come together so far. So I want to start with some things that people have said about this process, right? So Pete Buttigieg, sure. when he's talking about these highway projects writ large, right, the ones in many other cities, uh, including Detroit, he says this is going to be a reparative process. And then state officials, MDOT, says this is going to be a reparative process. And then when you talk to people in the city, they say this process needs to be reparative. So I want to start right there. What does that word mean to you, and how does that word, in your view, fit into this project? Great question, Stephen, and it's one I think that kind of gets to the heart of, of many of the dialogues that we're hearing, and uh, both at the national level and local level. At the outset, let me uh, offer a nuanced difference 
in my department, the plan development department, and also in many of our uh, collaborative departments, we're talking about restorative as opposed to reparative. Okay. We really appreciate the opportunity to use empowering and strengthening language. And also uh, restorative makes notion of us looking at how can we restore what was here, but also restore the, the, the psyche and the uh, economic vitality and potential of an entire base that no longer is here physically. So, so in some ways, in some ways, restorative is a more powerful word than reparative. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it implies yeah. a lot more to me. So tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, I, I went to school. I just passed by, Stephen. You know, I thought about these things, right? Um, I know that. I know you are speaking with intentionality, so I want to know what you what you mean here. There is an opportunity here, and I think it's important that we get this right. I've heard this from a number of residents. I've heard this from dear friends and colleagues like Charity and like others, and I think it's important. You know, we've heard this from the small business community. We've heard this from the legacy Detroiter community. We've heard this from a number of black households who have uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents that were on Hastings Street. We've heard this from current residents, right, that mm-hmm. live in the Jason area. So we think it's important that we acknowledge that, but also begin to define what we can do moving forward. A number of ideas have been suggested. Uh, there's quite frankly been no limit to the kind of things that people have ideas about. And so one of the things that the plan department wants to really get vested in is ensuring that we hear from as many voices as possible. Do I have ideas about it? Absolutely. Do I have ideas about what the city of Detroit can do that could be a national leader in the reconstruction? and uh, restoration of an incredibly vibrant part of our history, 100%. But one of the things I've shared with you when I first got here and what I've shared publicly is that we want to ensure that we hear from as many people as possible before, quote-unquote, we go out there like Moses with the two tablets and say this is what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate the dialogue, but we think that this is something that listening is going to take time. Right. And we want to make sure that we hear from people. There are some people that have roots in this area that have moved away. Right. They're not. They're either in entirely different parts of Detroit. Some of them move outside of Detroit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got inquiries about 75 for people who have roots in Black Bottom who now live in St. Louis, you know, live in Chicago, live in Texas. And so this is something that is being watched nationally, in addition, being watched by residents here in uh, Detroit proper. So let's go back to that word then, restorative. Mm-hmm. What would that look like uh, in, in this process in terms of outcome? Like, And I think that's an important distinction to make, too. Sure. The process, of course, needs to be focused on trying to include as many different voices as possible. And certainly those people who uh, lived in the neighborhood or had businesses in the neighborhood, uh, people who have connection to that place. But that's a really separate question then from what comes of the project because of that feedback. So so I want you to talk just about restorative, first in the, in the sense of process, but then in terms of outcome, what should we be expecting could be possible? Uh, what's the potential for restoration in this area? So it's a great point, uh, Stephen. I think one of the things we have to look at as far as process is, and, and I will parrot it from the rooftops, engagement is going to be key. Early on in the process when MDOT was having a circle of, of meetings and we were participating with them, there was a, a local advisory committee established, which was uh, representative of a number of stakeholders from across the region. They were very intentional to try to get current residents, to get current uh, business owners, but also to look at historical residents as well. I think that latter piece is obviously a little harder to wrap your hands around because it takes time to really determine, you know, who always lived there right? mm-hmm. and trying to ensure you're hearing from them. So that's one of the reasons why the city wants to be forthcoming in trying to solicit our residents that have direct relationships. Early on, we had engaged Jamon Jordan, who is easily one of the most 
prolific historians I know in this country, mm-hmm. and to try to begin to uh, narrow down not only the history of the area, but also help us identify entities and residents to engage. You know, the Black Bottom Archives is another group that I want us to do uh, more conversations with. There's definitely uh, a number, you know, Paradise Valley Conservancy with uh, Rainey Hamilton and Hiram and uh, Jackson and Dennis Archer. You know, obviously, I think they should be at the table. But we really want to ensure that uh, residents that have direct or even somewhat indirect relationships are part of understanding what can happen and what they would like to see happen. As far as what possible outcomes could look like, one of the things that we have to marry are desires and interests that residents would think are restorative with the ability to actually actualize those ideas, Mm -hmm. right? One of the things that I want to ensure is that we're not selling people pipe dreams, right? I, I think it's, you know, we have to look for resources to marry with potential ideas, right? And so that's something that we'll be investigating as well. However, one part and parcel that I think will be productive uh, and will be an outcome is that the planning and development department through the city of Detroit will be leading kind of a zoning and land use study, right? Because upon completion of the construction of the project, there will be um, a significant amount of real estate available that will be contiguous along one side of the highway. And it'll be around 29, 30 acres, right? And that'll probably be one of the largest contiguous parcels within central Detroit in the entire city. And so what does that look like? What should that look like? That'll be part of a zoning and land use study that will be leading, if for no other reason, at its base point to allow us to ensure that the right infrastructure is placed there underground to facilitate development, right? And so if we're going to be tearing up the ground, we might as well ensure that we have the right things put in there before we cover back up, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure we do a comprehensive study in that regard. But then, you know, the result of that will help to identify what uses would make the most sense. Would there be a potential to make that be another business sector? Would that be a a potential to have additional housing and additional housing, the inclusion of affordable housing? Is there an opportunity to have a mixed use where you have some housing and commercial activity together, which in and of itself would be reminiscent of what, you know, Black Bottom was, right? Those kinds of things will be livables, right? There will be a land use study and there will be a report and definition for us, which will not only help us to identify what uses would make the most sense, but also will get us along the road of doing some minor rezoning to what that real estate will need to be. Yeah. We're talking with Antoine Bryant, the city of Detroit's planning and development director, about the I-375 project to remove the highway on the east side of downtown Detroit and build a six-lane road. So I want to ask a really plain question about this idea of restorative. I think if you say that word to a lot of people in Detroit, they would imagine that it would mean bringing back as close to as possible the feel and the dynamic of Paradise Valley and Black Bottom. Obviously, you cannot recreate a neighborhood that was physically destroyed. I don't think anybody would expect that. But I think that word restorative would suggest to a lot of people that what would come behind this would seem very much like what was true in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Majority African-American, African-American businesses and entertainment spots and restaurants and all of the things that, that people who do remember that talk about all the time. Do you mean that when you say restorative? And do you think that's even possible? So those are two great questions, uh, Stephen. What I'll say is that we are in a city that is, depending upon you know how definitive you want to be, 79, 78% African-American. So we're, you know, four-fifths of the city is African-American. In a best-case scenario, it would be wonderful to see that there are opportunities for uh, four-fifths of our residents to own and operate businesses, for four-fifths of our residents to live in housing that they are excited and proud of, 
and to have places where we usually use the paradigm live, work, and play and have those opportunities. It's something that we hear ad nauseum with all our developments, be it within the neighborhoods or even downtown, right? It's something that residents talked about during District Detroit. Uh, it's something that residents talked about during many of our developments that are going up. It's something that's talked about in every development that goes up in the city, whether it's large scale or small scale. So I think we have to honor that. And quite frankly, in an in a area that has the history of this one being literally the footprint of what was the heart and soul of the African-American community in Detroit, I think we have to honor that as well. And so when we think about restorative, there's an opportunity to hearken back and then leap forward to a future that could be reminiscent of that and be very powerful. And one thing I think we need to kind of differentiate, everyone can value and enjoy a place that has the historic nature that this one has, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so I think that's something that sometimes gets muddled in the messaging a bit that people just want a black place. Well, I think that that's not exactly what is accurate. (laughs) I think we have an area that has a tremendous and powerful black history. I don't think that that anyone needs to be shy about that. It is a reality and it's a powerful reality. You know, there are over 304 businesses, I believe was the number, along Hastings Street. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful history, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And is there an opportunity to see what that could look like? I think that that's something that we want to examine. I want to ensure that that's what we're hearing from people. And then if we're going to add to the considerable allure that this city already has, there's a real opportunity to not only engage a powerful and very, very vocal resident base as part of this process, but to deliver something that everyone can be not only excited by, but uh, definitively looking forward to. Mm. And, And that's ideally our goal for the recreation of this to be something that people are eagerly awaiting. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Antoine Bryant, the City of Detroit's Planning and Development Director, about the I-375 project on the east side of downtown Detroit. Hi, I'm Andalisi. Tomorrow we'll get you ready for Noel Night with music from some of this year's performers, including Frontier Ruckus, Chris Bathgate, and Thornetta Davis. And WDET's doors will be open to the public. It's essential music tomorrow and Sunday morning at 11 here on 1019 WDET. The global video game industry is booming, with revenues topping $250 billion. The joke is that, like, a game getting released and going to markets, it's done by magic and sprinkles and and duct tape. I don't think people understand how many people it takes to get that game out to market. So why are mass layoffs cutting across the gaming job market? That's on the next On Point. On Point, weekday mornings at 10, here on 1019 WDET. WDET is supported by Klipsch, keepers of the sound since 1946. Klipsch speakers deliver an audio experience built on the cornerstones of power, detail, and emotion. Learn more about these iconic American audio designs at klipsch.com. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. I'm talking with Antoine Bryant, the City of Detroit's Planning and Development Director, about the I-375 project to remove the highway on the east side of downtown Detroit and replace it with a six-lane road. So I want to talk just a little about the process that we've seen unfold so far, right? So uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the timeline here, which has been going on for many years, and I, I'm not sure that everyone exactly knows <laughs> that, that that's true. I mean, this didn't just start uh, last year or the year before. MDOT uh, at the state level has been working on this and thinking about it and, and uh, holding – some public meetings on it for for about eight years now. I think is the is the number. Um, yep. At the same time, MDOT builds roads. They take care Correct. of roads, and they don't have 
a mission that gives them purview over all of these other things that are involved in the questions that surround, you know, I-375. Yeah, it's a road, it's a highway, and they want to make it into a road, but you have all of these other things that were there. I wonder if you can talk about from a leadership standpoint whether we have made a mistake making MDOT the face of this almost to the exclusion of anybody else uh, because what we're talking about is more than roads. It's all of these other things and that in order to lead on those things, we need other, I don't know, if it's agencies or uh, organizations, maybe even outside of government uh, to do that. Uh, I, I want to get your assessment of what we're doing and whether whether it's working to convince Detroiters that we are doing the right thing here. Stephen, that's a great question. And, and what I can say, uh, you know, the first part of that is that you're absolutely correct. Um, uh, you know, the Michigan Department of Transportation, right, their full name is a transportation entity, right? And they are the state entity uh, for the development, management, uh, repair, growth of our arterials all across the state. And they have uh, peers and, and corollaries, you know, all across the country. I dealt with TxDOT in a former life for nearly 20 years. And so MDOT is very similar to TxDOT, where that is their principal role, and uh, it's a complicated role, right? But it really is, as you state, centered around uh, physical development, right? That's what they're supposed to do. That they're actually relatively good at. And so that's something that um, they have been involved in this for quite some time because there's been uh, concerns about it from a purely physical um, standpoint. Uh, and so it's been looked at and discussed uh, quite a bit, both at internally, but also with the public. And, I, and it's my understanding that as you cited, a number of those conversations began before even the pandemic, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the, that conversation obviously is different than the repair and, and reconstruction of 75 or the repair or reconstruction of 94 because of uh, the historic nature of the neighborhoods that 375 went through. And so that is a noted and definitive difference than some of the other ones. MDOT understands that. It is why that there is a partnership with the city of Detroit. They have a consultant, HNTB, which has been integral in some of the engagement efforts at the very outset. But it's also why we are beginning a framework process to really uh, center around understanding and engaging all of, quote, unquote, the other things that this is in addition to a transportation effort. What you will begin to see and and, uh, in several of the more recent public meetings, the city of Detroit has been present and has been partnering at all of the public meetings. But one of the things that we're discussing right now, and and you'll begin to see the fruits of it, is that the presence of the city of Detroit will become more paramount. Mm. And we'll be working together on this because we understand the challenges we understand that this is a state road that goes through uh, the city, right? And it goes and, and replace, unfortunately, a historic city of Detroit neighborhood. Yeah. And so that's something that uh, the city of Detroit is uniquely able to engage around and begin to solicit solutions for. So there will be noted an increased presence uh, by the city of Detroit. And uh, we look forward to continuing to work with our partners on this, inclusive but not limited to MDOT, as well as the Downtown Detroit Partnership, mm. HNTB, and others who are working together to ensure that we get the best possible result for the citizens of the city of Detroit. Do you feel, and I'm asking this really on behalf of some of the folks that we've talked to, do you feel like the horse is already out of the barn on this, right? Like that because MDOT has had the lead for so long, is it too late, I guess, to think about this in a bigger way? Are things moving too fast? Uh, I will say, I will, and I don't mean to cut you no, off. No, go ahead. I will say no. 
I will say no, Stephen. I will say, the, using your same analogy, I will say the horse has begun to trot, but I would also say it's a really, really big barn, right? It's, <laughs> the, the horse is not He's not out of it. Barn yet. <laughs> He's not out of it, right? And so we have an opportunity to really, really ensure that we are hitting and engaging our residents. I know, trust me, I've been to meetings, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard the consternation uh, by our residents. I've seen the social media posts, you know, this process has been drugged on, on uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram and everything. I get it. It really has. Um, and, and, no, I, I get it, right? Um, and I understand it, and I can appreciate it. But one of the things that I want to ensure your listeners, as well as, you know, as I like to say, my fellow residents, I live here too, uh, that it is something that the city takes very seriously. And um, there is time for us to get it right. I make it my duty to ensure that we're getting this right and that we're hearing from people. You know, I joke with my, my wife sometimes that I get stopped at Maya and people ask me about 375, right? And I mean, you know, it is what it is. I'm here. I'm in, I'm in town. I'm easy to find. But it's something that we think that there is time. I know some people believe it's already planned. They're just asking us to uh, ask what color they want the signs to be. No, there's a lot more uh, <laughs> that will go into it, both the physicality of the actual highway to also what else can occur. And I can't state more emphatically that that second part, we have really a, a significant amount of time to get that right. The highway won't begin construction until late 25, maybe even 26. The actual, quote-unquote, real estate that will result from this, mind you, the entire arterial is under the purview of MDOT. Mm-hmm. So let me you know, make some, some clarity here. It's in Detroit. It goes through Detroit. It's surrounded by Detroit residents and Detroit businesses. It's adjoined by Detroit residents and Detroit businesses, but it is a state highway. So as of you know, November 15th, 14th of 2023, uh, you know, say Detroit has no physical authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that being said, upon completion of the highway, right, which is slated to be 28 or so, we're looking at what can happen upon completion, especially and inclusively to the real estate that will be created. Yeah. Uh, upon the completion of this. And that I know that is where people are looking at, and I appreciate that. But that is 2028. So what does that mean? That means we got a couple of years to begin to really talk this through. And, and that's the part I want to emphasize. This is a front burner, top priority initiative for the city of Detroit, for the departments that are working together on this, you know, the Department of Public Works, the Infrastructure Office, the Planning and Development Department, and all of our member departments is something that we are intentionally looking at, but it is something that we want to ensure we get right. And it's going to take some time to get right, but we will have the ability to do so if we're being comprehensive and inclusive about it. Yeah. We're talking with uh, Antoine Bryant, the City of Detroit's Planning and Development Director, about the I-375 project on the east side of downtown Detroit. So so I want to end the interview by talking just a little about you um, and your background. I mean, you, you, you're you still fairly new to us here in, in the city of Detroit, but I mean, you're somebody who's had an, an incredible number of experiences in other places dealing with these kinds of questions, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How does uh, redevelopment affect communities that, that it happens mm-hmm. in, and how do you make sure that the people there um, you know, are, are, are part of it and, and not just part of giving feedback but, but part of designing the outcomes, right, having an influence over over what sure. happens, uh, I wonder if you can compare what we're dealing with here, which which I I can't compare it to anything else we've done in Detroit. Um, yeah. But 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 I wonder if you can draw on some of your other experiences around the country to talk about, I guess, how critical uh, these questions are for for us right now in in, in this project. But but also uh, the things that you've seen that give you that give you a sense that we can manage this in a way that is inclusive and, and respectful 
uh, of so many, so many different interests that that have their eyes on this. Stephen, that's a, a great question, and I appreciate it, and I also appreciate the time to have this conversation. What I can tell you, I spent uh, 18 years in the city of Houston, working in community development, working in, in planning, working in design. I spent four years, well, actually, probably comprehensively, about six years in the city of Austin. Uh, while I was in grad school, I worked the entire time during grad school and worked doing affordable housing. Uh, was a property manager for the city of Austin's housing authority, uh, which was a whole different interview. We can have that conversation later. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and spent four years in the city of Oakland as a nonprofit housing developer in the late 90s. And we used to joke, if you can do affordable housing in the Bay Area, you can do it anywhere. Right? <laughs> right. So that's a whole other conversation. But one of the things that gives me incredible hope and excitement, quite frankly, about what we have the opportunity and the real ability to do here in the city of Detroit is that because of the intentionality of the residents, but also the very definitive support of both the administration and a very engaged city council, the resident race here in Detroit has far more access and capacity than most resident bases. Now, that may be relatively recent. That might be in the last two, three, four, five years. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you for, without a shadow of a doubt that highway construction in other municipalities has limited to no public engagement whatsoever. Wow. I mean, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, if this highway were in Houston, it would just begin built. And that'd be the end of that. Wow. Right? I mean, literally, you can look up the Interstate 45 in the city of Houston was looking to expand and it was going to go through an active community called Independence Heights, which is one of the oldest African-American-owned and operated communities in the state of Texas. Hmm. And was going to knock out, and this is like a current situation, not like it knocked it out in the 40s, right? They were going to expand the highway and uh, the residents had to go to the state and there had to be a state injunction, wow. uh, literally, to ensure that TxDOT would not be able to expand and and, uh, and go through literally an active neighborhood. Now, that's not to say it's not going to still happen. <laughs> that's been, that was going on literally while I just got wow. to Detroit. This yeah. is 21 and last year, 22. You know, TxDOT expands highways all of the time. In California, even, you know, what's many consider a very liberal state, there's a lot of highway creation and recreation that, again, does not engage the public to near the level that we are having the conversation that's facilitated by yourself and others to be able to, quote, unquote, have a seat at the table. Mm. So, you know, even having the ability to have the level of engagement that you see is something that's uncommon, right? The fact that there's even a conversation not only uh, centered around road design and and, uh, alignment, but even talking about the restorative nature of it is uncommon, not only in the South, but just nationally. I can't tell you, and Stephen, you may be aware of this, and, and you make, and your production team may be aware of this, how many municipalities call the city of Detroit because highways went through black and brown neighborhoods mm. all over the country. Sure. Uh, only a couple of them are, have actively done what we're trying to do, and none of them at the scale that we're looking at. And we get calls probably monthly. So y'all doing this three, seven, like, how is that coming? Like, I mean, this is a call I get on a pretty regular basis because a lot of other municipalities are trying to figure out how to make it work. The process for us, I think, is exciting. And one of the things that gives me real hope and energy behind it is we do have a state entity that's listening. And we work, I mean, I'm on the phone with them or in the meeting literally every day. We do have partners locally that want to play a role and, and are excited about the resident base and realize how important that is. And so we have the ability to engage. And we also, quite frankly, have media partners that realize the value of a healthy conversation as opposed to making this adversarial, right? I'm a native New Yorker, as many people know. And uh, if this were in New York City, it would be, you know, pitchforks and hellfire every day, <laughs> right? When people talking crazy to each other. And at the end of the day, I would argue that that's not solution oriented. Yeah. And so, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and have it in a healthy way 
uh, so we can come up with something that will be advantageous for those that literally and figuratively uh, live and serve here. So, you know, I've lived in a couple places. I've worked in a couple of places. Detroit is one of the few places where you have such a committed and responsive resident base, but you also have the tools and ability to be able to do something about that, which may not even have been here 10 years ago, right? So the fact that we are here in this very specific point in time, I think is an appointed time for all of us to come together and really make this successful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Antoine Bryant, uh, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Look forward to talking to you more. Okay, I want to thank Antoine Bryant again for coming by to give us that interview about the city's take on the I-375 redevelopment project. When we come back, we are going to continue the conversation about the I-375 project, and we're going to talk with WDET reporter Laura Herberg about a piece she did comparing I-375 and what we're rethinking there to the Davison here in the city of Detroit. Really interesting parallels between those two projects. We'll hear about them next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is supported by the Wright Museum presenting Ruth E. Carter, Afrofuturism in costume design with more than 60 original creations from films such as Black Panther, Malcolm X, and Do the Right Thing. Now through March 2024. Visits planned at thewright.org. You count on WDET all year long to cover the elections, the rulings, and the news that impact our world, our community, and our lives. WDET is your source for reliable and fact-based news, available every day, wherever, and however you choose to listen. WDET belongs to you, and the content we create relies on your support. End this year with a tax-deductible gift today and continue showing your support at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338. WDET is a community service of Wayne State University, a premier public research university in the heart of Detroit. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. We have been exploring the city of Detroit's role on Michigan Department of Transportation's I-375 project, this idea to get rid of the freeway and replace it with the road. And now we want to broaden the conversation just a little bit. MDOT has been discussing their I-375 highway project in a way that seems different. They are approaching it in a way that they would describe as different from other projects. But if you think about it, this won't be the first time Detroit has had to manage a transition from a six-lane highway to a road. The Davison Freeway, the nation's first sunken freeway, also ends in the middle of a neighborhood, and it becomes a wide-laned street that connects to another freeway, I-96. Along the way, it disrupts a number of neighborhoods, and it really has redefined that part of the city. Uh, MDOT has spent a lot of time and effort redoing the Davison, uh, supposedly to make it easier for cars and traffic to get through. WDET reporter Laura Herberg recently did a piece on the Davison, comparing it with MDOT's I-375 project, and we have invited her here onto the show to talk about what she learned. Laura, welcome to the studio. Hi, Stephen. I want to start with a clip of you on the street at Davison. Uh, let's listen. This probably sounds like a freeway, but it's not. This is West Davison Avenue in Detroit. It's the roadway that flows out of the M8 Davison Freeway to the east and into I-96 further west. The design of West Davison is different from what's planned for the 375 Boulevard. The 1.5 mile long route doesn't have a median, its sidewalks aren't widened, and there's no buffer track for bicycles. But like the 375 plan, West Davison primarily has six lanes, it has a speed limit in the 30s, and it's the extension of a freeway. So 
this could be a good example of what 375 might feel like after it's turned into a boulevard. So what is West Davison like? That's what I'm here to find out. So, uh, Laura, the first thing, of course, that you notice in that clip, and this is such a wonderful story, is the noise. Yeah. That traffic noise. I mean, as soon as the clip starts, you're just overwhelmed by the sense of cars moving by you and not slowly. Not, uh, not slowly at all. And Stephen, I actually had to turn the sound down. Just want folks to know there's there's no manipulation there. It was so loud that the levels, it was distorting while I was recording it. <laughs> so I had to turn it down so that it wouldn't clip. Um, and it was, it was really surprising to me just how loud it was um, to walk along the sidewalk there. I went before rush hour. I went at about three o'clock on a weekday and, and that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about where you came up with this idea. I, I, I of course, uh, work here with, with, with you and have, uh, we've had a conversation about sort of, uh, the comparison between this and what, I-375 might be like if they get rid of it and, and build a similar boulevard. But but talk about what brought you to this comparison. Yeah, so I was watching a city council meeting where um, John Lurie from MDOT was giving a presentation of what the boulevard uh, might look like based on the current plans. It was this sort of uh, virtual rendering, you're traveling along uh, the boulevard, and um, it, it does look a little bit like a freeway. And in fact, um, a city council member and uh, a resident who spoke at the meeting called it both a a freeway and a highway. But the thing is, the speed limit is just 30 miles per hour. So it's not a freeway, right? Um, But I live, uh, I live off of the Davison. Mm -hmm. So I take it every day to and from work and and end up on the Davison often. I think it was after I'd seen this meeting, I was traveling back um, from Hamtramck actually. So I was on the Davison freeway transitioning to um, West Davison and it just kind of clicked to me. I was like, this, this is what the boulevard could be like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the idea of what that does to those neighborhoods. There are several neighborhoods that this winds through on its way west to I-96. Uh, if you live in that area, th- there would be reason to have to cross Davison uh, to do things. And it's not its not an easy thing to do. It's not at all. Um, while I was reporting, I saw a woman uh, cross uh, in the middle of the street, not at a crosswalk. It, it, the, the traffic had to come to a standstill at one point. You know when somebody's just... If she wasn't in the um, turn lane anymore. She was in one of the lanes. And luckily they paused and she made it through. And then, um, you know, I talked to some other folks later who we might hear from as well. But it was uh, it was kind of scary. And myself, when I first crossed the street, you know, a car started turning into me and I had to be like, whoa. Watch so, out, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to play a clip of two people you spoke with, uh, Javon Josie and Dalen Fields talked about their experiences trying to cross Davison Avenue after uh, the freeway dumps out onto it. I'm an HSP, a highly sensitive person. So like I'm I'm real sensitive to like police car sirens, fire truck sirens. So that's why I have my headphones on a lot. Oh, it's it's terrible. You kind of kind of really can't even cross Davison. It's not around this time right now. You're going to have to wait a little a little bit. And it's kind of scary crossing Davison because of the traffic. People speeding, even at a crosswalk. Now, the response from Jonathan Laurie of MDOT was dismissive. I want to play a clip of him talking with you about the project. Yeah, there's really no comparison. That Davison stretch is really a, a, a connector between uh, the M8 freeway or between M10 and I-96 and serves a lot of through traffic and uh, truck traffic. You know, maybe we don't need some of these these lanes that we needed and forecasted back in, in 2017. Uh, we don't know exactly what that looks like at this point, but we're committed to doing that because we've heard those concerns from the community. So, so that distinction he's trying to draw there between the the part of town, I guess this is in, is is hard for me to to, to reckon with, I guess, because. Uh, I-375 serves the same purpose right now. It is a connector between I-75 
and downtown. It dumps out onto Jefferson Avenue, which then connects into M10, the lodge. I, I, I think the parallel here is much stronger than what Jonathan's talking about. I mean, I, I think the parallel is strong. I will uh, concede that he is right. There's not a straight line between the two freeways with 375, um, with the Boulevard plan that we see with the Davison. It really is a straight line connector. Um, but there, I think it's undeniable that there are a lot of similarities that I think might inform uh, what this boulevard could look and feel and sound like after it's constructed. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the things that people, I guess, endure and live with over on West Davis and Avenue, and I, and I should say that uh, my grandparents lived in Russell Woods when I was a kid, and I was born uh, on Tuxedo near Livernois. So this is a part of the world that, that I know pretty well. I do remember what it was like before. It, it wasn't always uh, quite as wide as it is. It wasn't always as geared toward cars mm-hmm. as it is. Uh, there, there was more foot traffic on Davison when, when I was a kid. Uh, when you talk to people about how this affects their neighborhoods, not just their travel in the neighborhood, but the neighborhoods in, uh, themselves, what kind of things do you hear? Well, we, we heard from the pedestrians, like literally afraid to, to cross the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't end up speaking to drivers for the story, but I did reach out to the, the Detroit Police Department because I know that they have um, a concerted, uh, they're doing concerted traffic watch on this section of the Davison. I, I reached out to them asking if I could do an interview and get um, stats on that. They were unable to um, honor that. But when I was speaking to an officer trying to set up the interview, you know, he said, yeah, this is because people speed there. Um, and uh, anecdotally, I know there are a lot of crashes. And I will say on my commute into work today, I passed a crash at an intersection on the Davison, which is not surprising at all, yeah. unfortunately. I, I, I guess I also wonder whether, so if you look at the plans for I-375, they are going to make it a boulevard. They say that they're going to, to slow traffic or try to slow traffic through the area so that people do find it more more walkable. But but I, I, I also wonder whether they said anything about considering the same thing for the Davison. I mean, why wouldn't you think about Davison Avenue, which is Actually, uh, uh, a part of town where there are more people uh, than there are down at I-375 and more neighborhoods that are disrupted by this. I I, I guess I was a little surprised that Jonathan Laurie didn't sort of take to that and say, hey, maybe we should rethink this as well. Yeah, well, to be fair, I didn't ask him that specific question, but I will say um, after reporting this story, it is a thought that occurred to me. Like, I I wonder if there will be plans um, to sort of reconstruct the Davison at some point and make it uh, more pedestrian and uh, bicycle friendly and safer to vehicles. I know that there are... um, they have installed crosswalks in between intersections that do have um, little islands in the middle for mm-hmm. you to pause at. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was there, there was a, uh, a pedestrian crossing sign that was knocked over on the ground and there was no button you could push to sort of, you know, get the lights to flash. And so it was really just cross uh, at your own risk when you when you feel ready to do it. So it does seem like there definitely are some improvements that could be done to the Davison. Yeah. Uh, is the Davison a point that uh, a point in the city that that MDOT is is talking about, is thinking about? Is this another? I mean, I suppose it's possible that they'll do I three seventy five. Maybe if it works, uh, think about other places like that. This would seem first on the list of of similar issues. I mean, that's a really good question. That's it. You're giving me a good idea for for a next story. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's very complicated how they um, fund these projects, how they decide what projects to work on. It happens years ahead of time. There's there's so many moving parts that go into deciding um, which freeways are going to receive the funding and attention that they may deserve. Um, so, but yeah, that's a good idea for something for me to look into to see is this even on their radar? My, oh, I can't even say it. <laughs> My hunch is that it's probably not. Um, but I, I'm saying that with, I haven't asked the question. I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 
313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Peter in Detroit. Peter, what's on your mind? Well, Stephen, what concerns me is the rush. Why are we in such a hurry? Hmm. In, in the 1950s, when they tore down Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, that land sat fallow for the better part of 10 years, maybe even longer than that, mm-hmm. uh, if my memory is good. So there's no reason for us to be in such a big hurry to build an eight-lane highway or whatever it is they want to do. We, we, it's too easy to get it wrong if you're rushing at the process. So, so Peter, I, I mean, I, I agree 100%. I think uh, MDOT would probably push back at uh, on the on the idea that this has been rushed. They've actually been talking about this for more than a decade now, and uh, they have been holding a lot of public meetings. They aren't well attended. A lot of people don't feel like they have been included in that process, uh, but but it's well under underway. I think the sense, though, that it's rushed is something that people who live in the area who don't feel like they've been made a part of the process actually feel. There are plans that MDOT is sharing, right? Where did these plans come from is the question that I hear an awful lot. Who made the decisions about what the plans should look like and and how is the community being accounted for uh, in that process? I think that makes people feel like this is rushing, like we are, are hurrying to an end of the project uh, rather than trying to get it right, uh, as, as you point out. But, but you're, you're absolutely right, Peter. I'm, I'm glad you called and, and made that point. Antoine Bryant, who uh, we talked to from the city earlier in the show, says it's going to slow down. He says it's going to be more inclusive. I think the key is uh, holding him and other officials in the process uh, to that pledge. Uh, Peter, really appreciate the call and the comments. Okay, uh, Laura Herberg, really great job on uh, the comparison between Davison Avenue and uh, what we're doing on I-375. And of course, thank you for coming in to the studio to talk about it. My pleasure, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week on Detroit Today. Come back Monday for more great programming. Also, if you like the show, enjoy listening. You should be sharing it. Share it with your friends or your relatives or anyone who you think would enjoy it and be a great member of the community that we're building here at WDET. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.